listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. In this time, what we're going through, you need to support local businesses. And there's this brewery in my hometown of Cherry Hill called Forgotten Boardwalk. And I keep getting emails from them of all these small batch cool beers I get. So I keep ordering them to support them. And you pull up and you call and you play online and they bring it out to your trunk. Well, the problem is I'm buying them, but I'm not drinking them. And another problem is from this year for St. Patty's Day, because I was in the hospital last year, I wanted to celebrate. Well, everything got closed. So I went out, except the liquor stores, I went out and bought some Hart, some Smidix, and some Murphy's. And the problem with that is I only drank a few of them. So now Joanne's bitching at me all the time because she's like, would you stop buying beer? It's taking up the whole refrigerator. And I'm thinking she bitched at me when I drank, and now she's bitching at me for not drinking. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my, my guest is a, uh, well, you know, he was a very success, successful actor. Now he's a very successful businessman. And that's cool that he could branch both worlds, you know, because a lot of people are lucky to be successful in one avenue, but he's had two. Now, watch, he'll probably say he was like a great athlete or something, too. But my guest is Scott Valentine. How you doing, Scott? Mr. Cooper, I'm rather well. How you doing, brother? Good. How are you, how are you uh, adapting to the whole situation? I know you said you're working because you're a busy guy, but how are you personally adapting, and how is your family adapting? You know, I'm doing fine. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but uh, I work from home. I, um, I, uh, I was in an accident years ago that has left me, you know, it's not that, that fun to walk around. And actually, once this gets done, I'm slated to go in and have some new parts put in. So it's all pretty, you know, pretty de rigueur for me, aside from putting on the mask and the gloves and the, uh, the, the hermetically sealed suit when I go to the grocery store. But it's all good. My kids are, they're, you know, they're young men. They're, they're surviving rather uh, well, a little bit uh, little antsy. I have one son who thinks that there's some sort of conspiracy theory going on here or some larger plot at hand by the government. And I just... <laughs> It, it is funny, yeah. You, you get so many people, especially because you know we're friends on Facebook, and uh, you know we, we both try to keep, you keep it light. I try to keep it light, and but some people just come up with these conspiracies, and you go, "Holy crap! What are you thinking?" I mean, it's not just about coronavirus. There's conspiracies about everything, and you go, "What is wrong with these people?" <laughs> you know, I think they've got a little bit too much time on their hands. <laughs> Perhaps we should give them a task like going out and filling potholes in the city streets or something like that. You know? Now, now you're you your business your business now you and you own an investment firm. Is that what it is? It's a, an investment banking firm, Excelsior Capital Partners. Um, we started, gosh, around '04. Uh, went into heavy into renewable and sustainable energy sector. Um, a little bit of some other sectors, new technology, some real estate. And still to this day, we uh, we, we love turning uh, garbage and shit and uh, other types of waste into power, and that's that's kind of a one of our core sectors. Um, although you know we still have our foot in entertainment as well. Uh, we presently have crews at work in Texas, Oklahoma, and uh, Wisconsin, and on the power sector. So for us, business-wise, things are we're busier than it was before the uh, the coronavirus hit. Now, I want to talk to you about your acting career, but I want to ask you, when you left acting and started doing this, you know, it's a full-time job, it's a, it's a great job, it it's, helps people, how did you acclimate in the first few years leaving the acting world and coming into the professional world? Because you're dealing with completely different people. I mean, given, you know, there's a lot of assholes in Hollywood, there's a lot of assholes in the business world, but it's still, you're dealing with a different, completely different mindset. You know, it was it, it was uh, somewhat of a slow osmosis. I went from acting. I got uh, not sick of acting, but sick of the bullshit that surrounds getting the acting job, and the pettiness and the the backbiting and uh, involved in the industry, regardless whether you're working in New York, Chicago, or L.A. Um, and I wanted a little more control of my life, so I started producing. And then I realized rapidly that producing, you're still dependent upon others to perform in a manner that. They say they will, and a lot of times people will say one thing and do another. So I had my, my aha moment was um, my last production deal was with Madonna's company. And I was sitting at my desk and watched the brand.
brain trust of uh, the executives coming back from lunch of Madonna's company, very, very well knowing that they weren't just having lunch when they went out. They were imbibing in other things, shall we say. And as they proceeded down the, the, the nave of the office, uh, it almost as if I could see that cloud of dust. Kind of remember in Peanuts when uh, Pigpen would walk down the, uh, <laughs> yeah, and there was that cloud of dust. And, and I'm looking at these, these, these. Uh, God, I got to watch my tongue here. I don't know how many expletives I can use on your show. You can use whatever you want. Folks, Do whatever you want. Uh, less than desirable. And at the time, I was working not to, under the same umbrella, but working with a woman who is now my business partner and has been my business partner for the past 16 years. And then also there was another gentleman on the East Coast that uh, had had made an offer to finance a deal that I had at MGM at one time. And he was at another capital company. And I thought, what the, you know, and they had financed the first turkey manure to power plant up in Minnesota. And I said, what the fuck are you doing, Valentine? You know, you, you want to feed your kids and house your children dependent upon knuckleheads like this that go out at lunch and get high and get drunk. Fuck that. And I uh, called up Dakota. I called up Johnny. He said, hey, let's, uh, let's turn uh, water into wine here. And that was the beginning of it. We did a facility up in uh, Colorado, and there's been a string of them since. It really, 08 was a, a turning point for us after that financial crunch where we had to go from large biodiesel or ethanol plants to smaller distributive-sized plants. But in, to answer your question, I'm sure I, you asked me what time it is, and I'm telling you how to make the watch. I apologize. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, a, a lot of it was when you're producing a movie, you've got to have the same sound business uh, practices as you do in, in any industry. That doesn't mean that always those sound business practices are, are implemented in the entertainment industry or other industries. But realizing that there are, you know, there are holes that have to be filled, and uh, you've got to fill those holes or plug them up somehow. And there was a boatload of meetings, and still to this day that we're in, where I just I, I make sure to keep my mouth shut because uh, there are guys and gals in the room that are much smarter than I am, that are much more adept at the particular industry that we're entertaining at the time. And a lot of times, it's you know, let let them rise and shine and, and support them. So. Um, it's been a it's been a learning process, but it's been wonderful. I'd rather people hear that I went and went off and started playing with uh, manure and garbage as opposed to I went to rehab or got arrested for you know some sort of illicit activity. Right now, now what made you get into acting? Yeah, you know, you're from Saratoga Springs. We had talked, and that's you know that's about what two two and a half hours from the city. Uh, about three and a half, depending upon traffic. You know? Now, what what made you decide to get into acting? Was it was it something you wanted to do as a child, or did it come later in life, or how did you pursue it? And how did it start? I was in college, junior college. I sucked as a student. I think my first uh, first semester in college, I had a one seven GPA. Next semester, I had a one three GPA. And the <laughs> next semester, they had auditions for this play. I auditioned. I liked it. The research I had to do for the play was the same research I could apply to some of the classes I was in. Um, I was getting more dates. Uh, girls were, <laughs> pretty girls were smiling and wanting to dance with me more so. And I thought, heck, what could make this better? Let's let's make money. If we can make money doing this. So I um, applied to a few different schools, got accepted to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, down in the city in Manhattan. Went there, had a great time. Uh, phenomenal class. Uh, some phenomenal, uh, you know, classmates that graduated with me. Um, Jerry Lambert, I don't know if you know Jerry, a tremendous actor. Uh, Douglas Bean Carter, tremendous writer, very successful in Broadway. Annabella Ciara, you know, very successful on, uh, in movie movie sector. And it was just, it was a wonderful environment, very uh, nurturing, very safe, and, and, and a lot of fun. And still to this day, there's a great connection to the school, and uh, the school is working with us. We have productions that we're doing on the entertainment side, and, and we still try to involve the Academy as much as we can. Now, you can never always believe Wikipedia, but it says you completed a three-year program in one and a half years. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. And I I just loved it. I loved what I was doing, and I went from being, you know, having a GPA of one, two, one, three, to having a 4.0 GPA, and just, I just loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I, I actually love acting. My favorite thing to do acting-wise is, 
Meridian Tonight or uh, Congreve's, you know, uh, or Wickerly's uh, material, you can't you, you can't make it up in editing. You know, what what you do is what the audience sees, and what the audience sees, you get an immediate reaction as to whether you suck or you're appealing. And I kind of like that. Now, when you graduated college. Where do you go from there? I know you got in an accident, but before that, what were you doing? Uh, I was working as a, as a chef at the Hilton at Rockefeller Center um, for the time and then got hit run over and dragged by a truck in Manhattan, hit at uh, 42nd and 8th, and I was on my way to my agents. I was offered a soap and I was offered a feature film. Uh, I wanted to do the feature film. My agent, of course, wanted me to do the soap more, you know, he's thinking more longevity more consistent checks, and uh, that was all. That was all derailed by the accident. I was laid up for about two years, um, and then after started to try to get jobs in New York, it culminated with uh, uh, with this woman. I won't say her name. <laughs> in the in the audition, and the producers going, "Yeah, we like you. We want to hire you." And, and and this bitch going, "Wait, wait, wait, wait a second. Weren't you in an accident?" everybody's in accidents. What do you mean? We all have accidents every day. We bump into things. No, no, you're in an accident. Aren't you? like, you're like a tinker toy. You have fake parts. You're going to fall apart on the set. We can't hire you. And right at that point, I realized I've got to leave New York and I've got to go out to LA as much as I did not want to go to LA. Uh, I've got to go to LA where nobody knows about this. I, I came out here and auditioned like a son of a gun. And then uh, 10 months later was extremely lucky to get a, a, a guest spot on Family Ties. And what was supposed to be one episode, I turned into four years, and I was kind of like the date that wouldn't leave, you know? Now, when you moved to L.A., where was the first place you lived? Because I know I always laugh when I moved. I lived in on, uh, on, on Leland and Highland. It was right behind Sunset and Highland. And I and this was uh -huh. when I first moved, and I paid three eighty five. Now, a month for a studio, and that was like 15 years ago. Where did you first move when you went out to L.A.? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Initially, I was staying with a buddy at the guest house of his guest house, and he was renting a guest house from um, Jody Foster's dad. That got really weird quickly, and then I went and rented one of those places. You know the Oakwood Apartments over in Barham? Yeah, I lived in Burma. I lived in Burma. Yeah. I used to drive by there all the time. Oh my God. And that got really weird. That was just, it was like, I didn't, didn't feel safe. Didn't feel safe. Felt very, very weird. Then I rented a house over in West Hollywood with uh, David Harris. I don't know if you remember David. David was uh, one of the leads in the Warriors. Okay. Um, the black dude who wears like the Native American garb with the beads and all that. Shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And David and I, we lived there over on Fountain and uh, between Sweetser and, uh, Genesee, I think. Okay. You know? <laughs> I love it. You know, it's changed so much. Like, you know, as I said, when I lived there, it was before Hollywood and Highland. Then I moved to Burbank, which, you know, is so quiet, but it was such a different world going from Hollywood, right near Hollywood High. And I always laugh because Hollywood High, when I was young, I had an album, Elvis Costello, Armed Forces. And there was an EP, uh -huh. there was an EP in there. And it was Allison and Watching Detectives live from Hollywood High. And I never thought I'd be walking by Hollywood High. So I always remember that. Even though it was a crappy neighborhood, Elvis Costello played at high school. <laughs> uh, you know, it was funny. When I moved to West Hollywood, which was only, I think, maybe a month and a half, two months after arriving here, I came here right after the 84 Olympics, a lot of folks in L.A. would go, oh, my God, do you feel safe there? You know, that's really, that's such a, it's a dangerous neighborhood. And I'm thinking, what the hell's going to happen in West Hollywood? Some gay guy hit on you? What, what, what's the danger? I don't see the danger here. You know, especially coming from New York, where I was uh, uh, a few times held up at gunpoint and other times had my head used as a basketball by drunk Irishmen and, and the, uh, over in the Chelsea Clinton area, you know, commonly referred to as Hell's Kitchen. So I'm thinking, no, this is, <laughs> I think that is a, the biggest danger I have is, uh, I, I don't know, bumping into, uh, it, didn't, it just didn't register with me. 
Right. 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 <laughs> now I got to ask you though, when you when you said you know when you before you moved to LA, you you were you're uh, rehabbing from your accident. What is going through your head? Do you think your career is over at that point, or do you does that make you stronger? I mean, what was in your? I know it was a long time ago, but what were you thinking? Like you know, you had this. The shit was about to happen. Then it got taken away. Did that make you stronger, or did that make you angry? Uh, I think it made me stronger. I, I, I got to admit, there was quite a bit of um, delusion in my head going on. I mean, remember, come on, you're of, you're of the same ilk, and you, you interview one of these every day, some sort of artist. We're, we're all delusional to think that we can beat the odds to become a working artist, to get paid to do our art. What a gift. What a great thing. So after being run over, and, and so your, your listeners know the severity of it, I, I literally died. They brought me back. I was paralyzed from the waist down. Um, I have an artificial femur hit part of my pelvis. And I had doctors telling me, you'll never walk, you'll never have children. I've got four beautiful boys now. Actually, they're young men. And I was just, kept saying to myself, I don't want to be that guy at 60 years old in a wheelchair going, yeah, I could have been. I was, you know, I was hot shit when I was 20. And I just didn't want to be that guy. And uh, thankfully, here I am at 61, able to look back. and, And I've had a life. I've had a great life, a lot of fun. A lot of great people I've met, a lot of great places I've visited, and, and many of those places and people are were permitted because of the entertainment industry. Um, so I just I just didn't want to give up, and that's the thing that I say to my boys. That's the thing that I say to anybody I meet. You know, anybody can quit. Quitting's easy. Anybody can give up. You're not just anybody. You're somebody. So have have faith in yourself, and every day just try to push a little bit. And I literally was. If I took one step yesterday and one and a half today, I made an achievement. You know, that's every a, little. No, that's. Go ahead, a, I'm sorry. No, that's a great. That's a great attitude. A lot of people don't have that attitude. A lot of people don't give up. I mean, I went through health problems, you know, with my heart, and I'm. I come out of it. I'm unlucky. You know, I sit there. I go. What I, did you have with your heart? What, I just had open heart surgery three months ago. What did you? What's okay? What's going on with you, Bubba? Okay, <laughs> I'll tell you. The, I'll tell you about. Eight years ago, I had congestive heart failure. Got out, took my meds. I was fine. I moved back east. I'm in the middle of getting uh, different insurances. I'm still on my insurance in L.A., and I have to go to switch insurances. But without insurance, my medicine is so expensive. So like an idiot, I have my buddy still getting my medicine in L.A. and sending it to me. But I decide to cut my doses in half because, you know, we're invincible, even though whatever. So, of course. So of course. basically, I was... I still remember I was not feeling that great, and I went to a for, to a cardiologist appointment. I'd been to one for a while, and I was all excited because that night I had interviewed Stu Cook from Creedence Clearwater, and I was going to his concert. I was backstage. I was taking my buddy. Well, I go in the hospital. My heart rate's going one seventy. Okay, my regular heartbeat's oh, out of whack. So they put me in the hospital. My heart uh, injection fraction or whatever it is. Is usually sixty five percent was down to twenty four percent. They kept me for yeah yeah, they yeah. Kept, yeah they kept me for eight days and I'm lucky I didn't stroke and I'm lucky I didn't go into cardiac arrest. I have this man bras I call it and it's a pocket defibrillator <laughs> was hanging off me and I'm thinking Jesus Christ I'm gonna get married in a few months. The guys tell me it'll probably go you probably have to wear it till the middle of July. This is in March. Well, I went back. Uh-huh. They they gave me something called an ablation where they they. Jumps, they they burn your heart in this yeah. thing, and they took yeah. my thing, and my heart was got completely back to normal in a month, and so now, hey, I just I take my meds. I'm not a fool. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now Good. what? Now when Good. did you when did you have open heart surgery? Uh, three months ago. Now, did had you had heart problems before that, or was it just something that came out of nowhere? delusional we think we're titanium coated we think we're we're fucking superman you know we really do and my heart would go from resting pulse of anywhere around 48 to 60 up to 160 170 and then go back down and i'm thinking jesus christ valentine you're fucking fat you're fat motherfucker and you gotta lose weight what the hell are you doing (laughs) and i'd go upstairs and be out of breath and stairs i'd lie down in bed at night i don't know if you ever had this your heart would start doing like flippy floppy shit. Yeah. Literally felt like it was flipping in your chest and then eventually it would be like a big gulp. You know when you go and you 
whenever you work out or you're really hot and then you drink cold water and your throat constricts and then all of a sudden it releases and goes gulp. And that's what my heart would feel like. I didn't think it was anything. I thought it was literally, you're fat, you're out of shape, get yourself in shape, you putz. And go to visit my honey who lives in Philly, outside of Philly. Um, have Get the uh, flu. Go to the urgent care. They do the test, the BDD, the bada-boo. They do an EKG. And the doctor goes, well, you know, you got a little blip here and um, something you may want to look at when you get back to L.A. So I go back to L.A. I'm getting, getting over the flu. Go to my primary, get the medicine. And still, about five, six weeks later, I've got fluid in my lungs. I said, what the fuck? I don't want to get pneumonia. I better, and I call my primary and I say, I still got fluid in my lungs. What the, what's up? And she said, well, come on in. Let's, let's, let's talk. Come on in. So I go in. She orders an x-ray. They do the x-ray. I go back to Philly with my honey. Get a call from my primary's assistant. Mr. Valentine, you've got the results on your test. Great, great. What are they? Well, the doctor would like to go over them with you. Okay, I'm right here. Get her on the phone. Well, she wants you to come in. Yeah, you know, I'm in Philly. Well, hold on one second. She comes back, and I love my primary. She's one of the best doctors ever. And the assistant comes back and gets on the phone and goes, Mr. Valentine, Dr. Burroughs wants you to know that they actually have flights that go from Philadelphia to L.A., and you need to get your ass on the plane and come back. <laughs> <laughs> so I come back, I go to the office, you know, and she's like, look, um, little spot on your heart, x-ray may have a blur on it, maybe nothing, whatever, but you know, let's, do a, let's do a CAT scan just to make sure. So they do a CAT scan on the upper body. They do a CAT scan on the lower body because of all the shit with my, my hips and all that. And um, do the CAT scan. I go back to Philly because I want to be with my honey, and I'm back there. And about a week later, I get a call from the assistant again. Mr. Valentine, we got the test from your CAT scan. Doctor would like to talk to you. I said, I know. I know the answer. I got to book a flight. <laughs> no, no, no. She's right here. Okay, cool. Put her on. So she gets on, and she's like, okay, you sitting down? You got a piece of paper? And she lists all this shit. Now, I hadn't been to the doctor in years, brother. I couldn't get insurance because of being run over by the truck. And thank God for ACA, and I could get insurance. But there's a lot of shit, as you know, as you get older. Mother Nature's laughing her ass off at us. And the doctor reads off this list of stuff, and finally she gets to my heart. She goes, so, your heart, looks like you may have an aneurysm here on your aorta, and uh, why don't you, when you come back, we'll set you up with a cardiologist and... Uh, you know, let's just sort of check it out. Let's see what we need to do. We may need to put a stint in. So I get back. I go and see the cardiologist, this great German guy, Dr. Schwartz. So, do you know why you're here? <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly felt like Colonel Quink was going to walk in the room, you know? <laughs> and, and he's a great guy. He's very handsome. He's got, like, you know, the California hair and the, 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 the bracelets with the beads and shit and his clogs on and all that. And when, and when they come into the room now, as you know, it's not one person walking into the room. It's like a team of six. They're pushing this computer on a cart. They've got a monitor on the wall. They pull up your x-ray, your CAT scan. And he's like, do you know why you're here? I said, well, I was told that I you know, may have a thing with my aorta. I may need a stint. No. <laughs> okay. You don't know why you're here? I said, look, doc, you're the doc. You're the expert. I'm just the putz. Why am I here? You have an arrhythmia. September 
insurance company and trying to get everything confirmed with the insurance company to have the operation at Cedars took three months just to make sure that I had the authorization for the anesthesiologist, the urologist, the x-rays, the CAT scans, everything. And um, had it in December. I feel great. And thank God I have insurance because I got the bill from Cedars. And had I not had insurance and the normal rate that would have had to have been paid for the total proceeding. Give me a guess. What do you think? Ten days ICU. What do you think? How much? Um, 262000 Dude. Dude, come on, Stevie. $1.7 million. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy fucking shit. Well, see, I got... When I, gotta... I hear people... When I hear people bitch about Obamacare, and Obama was an asshole, he was a fucking idiot. Either they're idiots or they're bigots, because if I didn't have insurance, and if I couldn't get insurance because of being run over by some fucking asshole, you know, whatever it was, uh, 38 years ago, I would have died. The doctor probably told you, as they told me, if you don't get this done, you're going to be dead in 12 months. Well, see, no, so. for, for me, okay, the difference is when I went in, and I got lucky. I had not, I needed a cardiologist, and I, I do business development, and I was at this uh, Christmas party. I was talking to this lady, uh-huh. and she works for Deborah Heart and Lung, which is one of the top places. And she goes, you should come down here. She goes, because it's free. I go, what? She goes, our donors pay for everything. I go get the hell out of here. So I went down there, and they did everything. Like my my, I didn't my stent. I didn't like my, whatever it's called. My my, uh, not my stent. My uh, arteries are clear. Uh-huh. Everything's clear. Mine was the irregular yeah, heartbeat. Me too. So what they, they did the angiogram, and it's like the doctor's like, there's no plaque, nothing. Yeah. I mean, I eat my open oatmeal every day. Yeah. So, so what what they did to me though is to solve mine was the ablation to fix my regular heartbeat because it's electrical. So they went in there and then I, that was an I had atrial fibrillation at Christmas. I had an atrial flutter, which it was, I was in and out the same day. They put you to sleep, uh-huh. they go through your leg, they burn it. But my bill ended up, I ended up not having a bill and I had been on my company's insurance. Now I'm on my wife's insurance, but it's always funny. And you'll appreciate this because you had a huge bill. I love the feeling that I know they're paying the whole bill, but when you get that, that piece that says this is not a bill and every fucking service is listed and how much it would be and it says zero, 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 zero. You're like, ka-ching, I scored. <laughs> I got down on my knees and kissed the ground. That's what I did when I got 36-page line item bill. Probably yours was about the same, too. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is that we're sitting here and I'm guessing you're around my age. I'm not going uh, to... I'm 56. I'm 56. Okay, we're close enough. If this conversation was 30 years ago, we'd be talking about doing blow, getting laid, going out, you know, partying. Oh, yeah. And here we are. I I have a purse. I've always had a purse. And everybody laughs and I don't give a fuck. It's my purse. It's where I want to carry shit. And I had, like, back when I lived in New York, I had this leather satchel. And in that satchel was probably some marijuana, a pipe, a little blow, eye drops, gum, you know, to hide the smell and all that shit. Now it's fucking, like, you know... Q-tips, tissues, <laughs> liver pills, well, anti-inflammatory. It's funny. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, I was talking to my roommate from college, and he has a, a harder problem. He has to get something. And we were talking about medicine, and he's like, yeah, you're a metropolo. How much? I'm like, uh, uh, ten, five milligrams. He goes, oh, you're a pussy. I'm on 100 milligrams. Come on, pick it up. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, dude. Hey, brother, I got to say, I, I was looking at your, uh, your site. Okay, coopertalk.net. Everybody go to it. Check out There's a lot of great interviews that Steve has here. But two guys I got to mention that you have interviewed that I think the world of. One, you just interviewed him four days ago, Rob Paulson. Oh, God, yeah, nicest guy. Love him. Love him. Love him. I did a shitload of voiceover work and kicked myself in the ass every day for stopping doing it and getting pissed off at Hollywood because it was so much fucking fun. Rob and I did a show called Phantom 2040. Deborah Harry, Ron Perlman, Carrie Snodgrass, Margot Kidder, Pam Alden, who just uh, name after name after name, right? And one day we're recording and we're all, you know, they got the mics lined up. You know what it looks like. I'm sure you've been in that environment. But for your listeners, everybody's in a, in a sound uh, sealed room with your microphone and your little table thing. And in the booth, was not only the engineer and the director, but some, for some reason, all the producers decided to show up that day and started giving 
you know, seven wives tell you, no, I want the, I want the wall painted this color. No, we want it that color. No, I want wallpaper. And it was so fucking confusing. And they're all talking to me at once. And Rob, right in the middle of it, said, stop it. Fucking stop. You're all beaten up on this guy. He's doing a great job. He's working as fucking hard as he can. You don't know what the fuck you want. And you're making him goddamn confused. Just fucking stop it. And I just will never forget that. It was so wonderful of him to rise up and protect a fellow actor that way. So that's one. And then another guy you interviewed just, I believe, right around Christmas time, Darren Serafian. Yes, and he was so Darren, nice. Darren and I have been, I've known Darren, my ex-wife, I got to tell you, when I came out here and I met her, oh gosh, I don't know, a couple months after I came here and we started dating. And when we started dating, she said to me, now I got all these male friends and they have to approve of you. So I'm going to have a dinner and you're going to come over and they're all going to have to meet you and you've got to get the stamp of approval from all of them. I think, what the fuck? And she's kind of laughing, but she's kind of serious, right? And I go over to her apartment, I walk in. Now, mind you, my ex-wife has got this crazy shit. When we were married, she had a guy that she was engaged to come and stay with us. She had another guy come and stay with us. Her and Darren had dated. Her and, you know, other people. And I walk in and there's six guys and her and one of the six guys is Darren. Now, the other five are very congenial and nice. Darren's a total fucking prick to me. <laughs> Just a complete asshole. And this is back in 1984, okay? But then, as, as time goes on, Darren and I got so close. Darren was, I don't know, I heard you mention Joanne. I don't know if you and her are married or not. Yeah, we are. Um, okay, how long? Um, seven, seven or eight months. Oh, muscle tough. Way to go. Yeah. yeah. Very, very happy for you. Very happy. But um, Darren is like a brother to my ex-wife. He's still extremely good friends with her, and he's there for her a lot of times. He's just a complete match. But there were times that Darren would have to come over and referee fights between us. He's such a fucking good guy. He's just a, just two really good guys, Rob and Darren. So you've got you got quality folks on your show, lad. Here you go. Thank you. Well, now you said in '84. Now you said eight um, family ties. You got started in '85. Right, eighty July of eighty five. Yeah. Now it was already a popular show. What is that like going on to a popular show? Is it is it is it intimidating? Because and you said it was just a guest spot at first. Yeah, it was a one time deal. It was extremely intimidating. It was very awkward, and especially going. You know, you've walked into these situation where you know the band's been together for ten years, and you're walking in, and you're the new bassist, or you're the new drummer. You know, and all the other people are passing judgment. And they're kind of looking at you, smiling, but they're giving. They're giving you that uh, sideways glance, right? Um, and it was just as congenial and as nice as everybody was. And I got to say, Gary Goldberg, bless his heart, he's dead now, he's moved on, was one of the sweetest guys ever to work for. It was really like having a big, big huggy bear brother. Um, he had said, he wrote, wrote this book. Now, mind you, I've never been invited to any of the Family Ties reunions. That's a, that's a thing to talk about there, which, which we won't mention. But when Gary had his book released, I was invited to the, whatever, the, the, the releasing party, whatever the hell it's called with books, the premiere party. And when he introduced me, he said something. He goes, here's a guy who had one of the toughest jobs of playing a character on a show that everybody, with the exception of one person, didn't like that character written in. And it was a very odd dichotomy. And that kind of existed for the four years that I was there. It was uh, I, I always felt sort of like, you know, the date that wouldn't leave, in a way. Now, you were, you know, I remember you being, I was in college then. I, I, went, I, was, I graduated college in 86, and I remember you were on the show then. And, you know, the girls, all the chicks dug you because you were like that cool, cool guy. What was it like for you in Hollywood to be someone who, you know, is somewhat of a, becomes sort of a sex symbol? What is that like? I had no idea. Dude, <laughs> you're talking like this. The guy who, <clears throat> I had no idea. I really didn't. You know, when I, you had mentioned Facebook earlier, and that's how you and I connected. Um, Facebook can be a pain right in the fucking ass. There's so many goddamn ignorant people that just have, you know, and, they, and the brazen disposition they take in, in attacking a certain subject when they have the safety of they're sitting in their home in front of a computer and there's no direct contact. But 
you know, running up to your car and pulling their shirt up or opening their shirt up and here's my breast, please sign them, kiss them. It was all, it was all really strange. And I really actually wasn't that comfortable with it. You know, I didn't really, it, it was not a, um, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a rather gregarious sort of social fun guy. And I think it, it takes a whole, it takes a village and, and to be singled out in that way was just a little uncomfortable for me. Now, what was the party scene like in the 80s for a celebrity? Because, you know, as I said, I was in college in the 80s. What was it like going out to a nightclub when you were on a hit show? I mean, were people just thronging to you? Did everyone want to be your friend? Or what was it like, let's say, if you went to the Whiskey or if you went to the Troubadour? What would it be like for you? Crazy. It was literally crazy. Literally just crazy. Now, I'm not a guy that goes out didn't really like clubs and bars when I lived in New York, didn't like clubs and bars when I lived in Saratoga Springs, and when I moved to L.A., it was not my scene. Uh, we were much more into, let's go to so-and-so's house, let's invite whatever, five, eight, 20 people over, and let's just keep it here in the house. But when I did go to clubs, and I remember one incident specifically, these two young ladies coming up to me and going, oh, we both, we want to fuck you, we want to fuck you right now, come back to our place and we want to fuck, and I was like, Really? You don't even know me. Yeah, I know you. No, you don't know me. Yes, I know you. No, you know a character I play that comes across in a box that sits on your dresser or your credenza or whatever in your house. I could be a fucking rapist. I could be a complete asshole, and you're willing to go home, get naked, and let me explore your body. No, thanks. I don't want to. And it just, <clears throat> it, it, it just wasn't my scene. Don't get me wrong. I love sex. love the naked female anatomy, but right time, right place. You know what I mean? Now, did you get to meet any celebrities that you thought you would never get to meet? Whether it be a musician or a huge actor, did you get to meet anyone that you were like, holy shit, this is a great perk? Yeah, 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 yeah. Dustin Hoffman, you know, lived next door to uh, Johnny Travolta for a long time, met a lot of people going to parties at John's house. Um, just, there are, you know, it's funny, the interesting thing is people that are, are really, you know, um, um, Oh, what's her name? The extremely talented female actress that has won so many Academy Awards. Um, Meryl Streep. You know, um, meeting people that are of that ilk, of that level, every time I've met, with the exception of a small percentage, they're really fucking cool. And they're really interesting. And they're really great to talk with. Um, and I just it was able to discern from that to people that were still still weren't sure in their position or still struggling or still wanted to, you know, felt that they, there was some insecurity going on and those people were typically assholes to interface with. Dustin Hoffman, my interactions with him were just, he was just a fucking sweetheart of a guy, you know. Um, it's just, and it was cool. It was really, really cool. I remember a party one night uh, at um, John McEnroe's <clears throat> and, um, Eddie Van Halen was there. Such a nice guy. Just what a nice guy. What a great guy. You know, um, it's funny. Chevy Chase was at the same party. That was a that was an odd exchange. Having him sit next to me on the couch and start crying about his career is over. And <laughs> you're young and funny, and I'm washed up and old. Nobody. <laughs> it was really, 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 really weird. You know. But then you know, um, Angela Lansbury, sweetheart of a lady lived down the street from her for a long time and she's just so kind to my children and very, very, very sweet. But then meeting, you know, the guy, remember the guy Andy Mayberry, what was his name? Andy Griffith. Yeah, that we all grew up with. And he was a total ass, just rude, mean, just a, a fucker. <laughs> I was like, dude, <laughs> you're supposed to be like Andy's dad and we go fishing together, we whistle the song, why are you such a knucklehead, what the hell? But then somebody, somebody like Chuck Norris, who his politics and mine are, are you know, sort of opposite sides of the spectrum, but a gentleman, sweetheart of a guy, really nice guy, you know? Um, Al Pacino, nice guy, a little quixotic, but a nice guy. Um, Bobby Duvall, great guy, a little testy, but a great guy. So it, it's truly people that have made it generally seem to be more grounded and more amenable. You know. So you're, you're meeting all these people. Your career is going great. Why do you? What, what happened to family ties? Why did you decide to leave? You know, I really uh, never talked about it. 
in an interview, and I don't think I should talk about it. Okay. I don't. It's 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 not fair to say things that could be perceived as judgmental with regard to other people, and it's better just let's. Let, let laying dogs lay. No problem. Know? No problem. So then after that, though, now you, you, you know, people don't understand, you know, you run a few pilots. Now, how many pilots did you do after that? Oh, dude. <laughs> hey, at some point, I do want to tell your listeners, we've got a movie premiering next week that was going to be out theatrically that I'm one of the producers of, and I, uh, we're going to premiere um, online. On that, we've got another. We've got about 10, 12 shows that'll be launching this fall on our own OTT. So I want to want to plug those at some point. Well, uh, why don't you but, tell um, me? Why, hold on, why don't you tell me about the movie now? Uh, movie is called Hood Pranks. Uh, folks can go. They can rent it. They can buy it at hoodpranks.com. Uh, it's this this uh, this black dude, this African American gentleman, Van Bino went around for years doing these pranks on other other African-American folks in the hood that it's kind of like jackass meets the hood and it's fucking hilarious it's just hilarious I highly encourage you to watch it there's some shit because it gets some of the shit gets really real like really 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 real and then when they pull the mask off at the end and go surprise we pranked you it's just hilarious to see how they react so hood pranks comes out next Friday hoodpranks.com please check it out and if you want to be on one of our shows we're doing two shows with the NFL one is a uh, tailgating show the other one is a wellness show um, we've got the, the blessings of the NFL Alumni Association Bart Oates has been uh, our emissary there he's good buddies with my partner Larry Meistrich Larry started the uh, company um, shooting gallery back in the 90s Larry produced Hood Pranks or not hood pranks, yes, he did that. But he also, he produced his big break with Sling Blade with uh, Billy Bob. And uh, another movie he did, uh, You Can Count On Me, an Academy Award-nominated film. And Larry's, Larry's the only guy that I know that has uh, knocked out Harvey Weinstein and lived to tell the tale, uh, got arrested, didn't go to jail, but knocked that motherfucker out and taught him a lesson. So it was a, a disagreement that Harvey was having with Billy Bob, and then he started slapping Billy Bob. Yeah, because we, we got the plugs in, and that's good. I, I didn't know you had a list of stuff coming out. And I love those prank shows. You know, I like them because from the old school. You know, it was like, it goes back to Candid Camera. I mean, it was funny. Now, sometimes I think they're over the top, but you don't see them happening in the hood that much. And that's what's great, because people really probably fell for them. I mean, sometimes you see something, and it's like, okay, is there really going to be a flying baby in a coffee shop in Manhattan? No. <laughs> no, it's just not going to happen. Dude, you have got to watch this show. You have to watch it, I swear to God. Okay, I think it's like I don't know what it is three ninety nine, four ninety nine to rent. Gotta check it out. There right. are some well orchestrated pranks. There is one where they've got this kid in the back of the car, um, and his brother's a drug dealer, and they're trying to bust him for being one of the drug dealers. And they feign, they fake shooting his brother over there, and they've got what appear to be real cops, other cops coming on the scene, and it's so fucking hilarious when they finally revealed to this kid what happened. There's another there's another bank heist prank. They they went to rather elaborate lengths to set up these pranks and they're they're good. They did Fambino did a fabulous job. And if you want him to come on your show, I think I can get Fambino to come on your show if you'd like. Well let me okay. check it let me check it out first. Let me check it out. Yeah, you check it out and then Bebe that. Right. Um back to the pilots. They did three spin offs of Nick. First one was a Herschel 
Hardy. Do you remember Hesh? He played Tevia on uh, Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof, won a Tony for that. Um, was the voice of Charlie Tuna. We'll all remember that as old as we are back when we were kids for, uh, what was it, the tuna that was made? Starkist. Starkist. Chicken of the Sea. We shot it. <clears throat> Hesh was a great guy. They picked it up. They're doing all the photographs and all the press shit for it. And then all of a sudden I get a call. One morning, Hesh died. He was taking a shit at three in the morning and had a heart attack while he was taking a shit. So that show, Gary calls me up, says, okay, come on back on. We'll have you back on the on family ties for a year. and We'll do another one next year. So we took another stab at it next year. And I don't want to say who the husband and wife writing team was. And they had had other shows on TV. And when they submitted the script that we were going to do, I went to Gary and I said, Gary, I can't, we can't, I can't, we can't really, this is really bad. I mean, this is really bad. I can't do this. So then that got scratched. And then the next year, we did a spinoff with me and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I think you may remember her. She's had somewhat of a career. <laughs> right? It's fucking hilarious. They test the thing. It tests through the roof. All right? And I'm thinking, great. Finally, they're going to pick up the show. We can go down the road and continue on in another fashion. Um, and next thing I know, I don't. I get a call. I'm like, they're not picking it up. I'm like, what? They're not picking What are you talking about? So I'm not told. Now, they aired it during the summer. And when it aired, it got like a 45 rating. Now, mind you, that was a time there were only four networks, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. But a 45 rating was rather considerable. I'm like, why the fuck did they, what the, and you sort of, you got to let it go. You got to move on, right? But then one of the gentlemen who is the showrunner on the show and has gone on to be an extremely successful showrunner, uh, did Drew Carey's show, did Roseanne show first time around, did Roseanne show second time around, did Charlie Sheen show, he and I remain, remain friendly, and we got together one day for lunch, and we go out, we eat, blah, 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 we go back to his office, we're sitting there talking, and, and he goes, you know, it's really a shame that those guys got into a fight, and I'm like, what guys? You know, guys, and your show, I said, nobody fought on the show, he goes, no, 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 not on the show, after the show, I said, what are you talking about? Gary and Brandon, they got into a fight. You didn't know that? He said, no what? And what he was talking to, referring to, was Gary Goldberg and Brandon Tartikoff. And Gary had decided to do shows with NBC, and they agreed to do them at NBC Studios in Burbank, not at Paramount, where Gary was doing all his work. Now, what your listeners who are not in the industry won't know, there's a thing called meal penalty, that when talent comes to work, you've got to give them a meal within six hours of them being on the set. When I first got on Family Ties and they came around, they said, oh, well, you're willing to waive your meal penalty? I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, if we don't feed you within six hours, you know, the, the show gets fined every 15 minutes that we don't feed the actor unless you formally waive it. And I'm like, yeah, sure, because we're going, you know, with any creative endeavor, whether it's a band, whether it's a dance troupe, whether it's uh, actors, <clears throat> it takes a while to sort of have it meld. And once it melds, you want to you keep that, keep it rolling, you know? So everybody at Paramount gladly waived their their meal penalties, and Gary rewarded you handsomely at the end of the year. Cast, crew, everybody who was rather beneficent. But up at NBCP, they had finally got things going, and then the uh, the uh, I think what's it called on a sitcom? I think stage manager is the first AD. Said, "Okay, meal break." And Gary goes, "What are we doing? What are, let's can we you know let's let's keep going. We just now are getting it." And the crew's like, no fucking way, man. We're taking our meal. Well, can't you do uh, waive the penalty? No, you want to pay it, pay it. So Brandon and Gary started getting into having a difference of opinion, which I was told secondhand, went from sort of uh, vociferous talking to vociferous pushing and shoving, almost hitting. And at a certain point, somebody said, I don't know if it was Gary or Brandon, said, well, you can't have my show. Well, I don't want your show. You can't have my show. Fuck you. I don't want your show. And the show they were talking about was the pilot that I did with Julia. So that got trashed, you know. So it was, it, it's just funny. I mean, it's, and it's part of what led me to want to be out of the business because there was another pilot I did with, um, remember the show Nightcaller? Yeah, Gary Cole. Yeah, Gary Cole, who's gone on to have an extremely successful career. Sweetheart of a guy. And I don't know if you remember, Peter Boyle played his father on the show. Oh, yeah, Peter Boyle. Everyone Loves Raymond. Young Frankenstein. Yes. 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 John Lennon's buddy. Okay? So they said they want to do a spin 
show, <coughs> we want you to play Gary's brother, Peter's son. I'm like, yeah, great, love it, let's do it. So we did it, we shot it, there was some problems during the shoot, which should have been a good indication. And when they got done shooting the show, I get a call from the uh, the, the showrunner, the EP, he goes, well, looks good, but I gotta tell you, there's a little problem. I said, okay, what's the problem? He goes, well, when we cut it all together, we're at 66 minutes. <clears throat> you know, our show's 44 minutes. Two-hour show's 88 minutes. They're right in the middle. I said, well, what are we gonna do? And the, the EP, Bob Singer, he goes, well, I'm gonna go back to the network and see if I can get more money and you know, let's, let's, let's round it out to two hours. Okay, cool, love it. They wouldn't give him the money. They obviously looked at it, didn't like it, didn't think there was something there. So then they cut it down from 66 minutes to 44 minutes. And it just didn't make sense. <clears throat> there were such large gaps in the show that it was really like, what? What's going on here? This, huh? So it got trashed, didn't work. But I was the one that was, it was like, well, why didn't this work? What happened? It's got to be Valentine. Valentine's the reason. You know, there, there it is right there. We got Gary. We got Peter. We got, you know, so because of writers and producers not being able to write a 44-minute show, not being able to cut a 44-minute show, it was then it was my fault that it fucked up. And for years, I couldn't, I can't remember the studio. I don't know if it was Warner Brothers or Universal. And see, it's nice. I have another career. I got another job. I don't have to be subservient to all these people and I can talk freely. But like, whatever studio was would not see me for any project whatsoever. And I did a play with uh, Catherine Mary Stewart. I don't know if you remember her. Yeah. Out, out here. It was extremely successful. It was a uh, romantic comedy. And the guy who became the head of comedy for that studio was friends with one of the producers. He came and saw the show. I talked to him after. Blah, 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 and I said, you know, I did a show a few years ago and yada yada. Blah, blah, blah. I said, <clears throat> could you see if there's any validity to that? And, you know, because I'd really, <laughs> I'd really like to work as an actor. I got four kids and I got to feed them. And uh, he called me up a couple days later. He said, you know, I did a little, did a little sniffing around and I found out, yeah, you were, you were deemed the reason that the show failed and uh, you were sort of persona non grata. Nobody, don't see Valentine. So I don't know why the fuck somebody would do that. And after that day, and the guy's name, the executive, Dave Janelari, you know, I started being seen again. But I don't know why I was nailed with that. Look, there was another, another show that I had auditioned for. Didn't want to do, but I needed the money. Uh, Beverly Hills 90210, they were adding a character. I wanted to be on that like I wanted to drill holes in my head. But once again, I wanted, wanted that check to feed my family, pay my mortgage, you know, not my cup of tea. And again, my ego is I'm a theater actor. I want to do Congreve and Wickerly and Odets and O'Neill. I don't want to do some piece of shit, but I do want to make the money. So, okay, shut the fuck up and do your job. I go and I audition for this. They wouldn't see me. And I get bugging my agent, my manager, and finally it was like, well, they'll read you. And I go and I meet the assistant to the assistant of the casting director. And it's like literally you're going in to meet some college kid that does nothing more than, you know. So I get passed to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. And finally, <clears throat> I get where I'm in the room, and it's me and one other guy. And, you know, you're in that room. There's the studio people. There's the network people. There's the production company people get done doing it, go out. When I finish, the gentleman who was the showrunner comes out, says, great job, you're the guy, love it, love it. The gentleman who was the showrunner was also a client of the same management company I was at. And I think, great, got the fucking job, yay, we can pay the mortgage, we can buy milk. Don't get a call that day, not the next day, not the next day. And I'm calling my manager, what the fuck, what's up? And finally, three days later, I get a call from manager and he goes, well, they're passing, they're gonna go on to somebody else. I'm like, what the fuck? Your guy followed me out to the hall, walked me to the elevator, said, you're the guy, blah, 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 what the fuck? I don't know, just, but that, we'll get something else, we'll move on. He said, no, I wanna find out what, what was wrong. When the guy who's the decision maker, the showrunner, comes out and says, you're the guy, he or she, the showrunner, pretty much, they're, they're the, uh, the ultimate decider. Unless somebody at the network totally fucking hates you and doesn't want you, right? I said, to my manager, you know, find out what the fuck happened. He goes, yes, Scott, let it go. I said, no, I don't want to let it go. I want to find out what the fuck. Do I have a third arm growing out of my back? Do I have some sort of disease? What is it? Because at that point, I'm not feeling so happy with Hollywood. 
which eventually, shortly thereafter, I started producing. But um, um, manager calls me back. He finally got Aaron Spelling on the phone. And Aaron Spelling said to him, and, and I'm not quoting verbatim, but it was pretty much of, I will never hire Mr. Valentine. I don't want Mr. Valentine anywhere near any of my projects. And if you continue with this line of questioning, I'll never hire any of your clients. So what the fuck did I do to Aaron Spelling? Why, the f- why is he have an ax to grind with me? And I have no idea. I met the guy once at a, at a premiere of a movie that his wife did and have no idea. So it was that kind of shit that's very, it's like high school, you know? I want to be judged on my performance, on my actions, on my abilities. Not because of some, what, gossipy bullshit that goes on. So in the business world that I'm in, pretty much there are assholes in in every facet of business. Uh, And the business that I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation But in that world, you can still mitigate that by having a solid project with a solid foundation, solid assets, and and tremendous solid forward-looking predictions. Um, And that's that's something that uh, I went and going, I've I've got to feed my kids. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be doing the, my best acting at that time, Steve, was walking into the room having, you know, read the script the night before and going, wow, wow, geez, somebody really, man, they did a good job with this, didn't they? They just, wow, they really wrote, didn't they? <clears throat> and knowing I thought the material was a piece of shit, but knowing I needed to pay my mortgage and buy milk and bread for my kids. So it was rather, it got to a point felt very somewhat demeaning and compromising. And I was like, you, you got to do something where you feel good about yourself, Bubba. But you, you know, you... And, um, I was going to say, you know, you said it, you know, it felt demeaning and you know, had to make the money. But did you ever at that time when you, you know, you had the, for, for stupid reasons, you know, you weren't getting gigs or the pilots weren't getting picked up. Did you ever start getting a real sense of bitterness or just anger at the business? I mean, what kept you yeah. in it? I mean, what, how do you deal with that when the shit's right in front no, of you? I, I got so angry and I felt literally, and, and call it my ego, I thought, you're a, you're a trained actor. You're a, you're a learned thespian, and you're auditioning for stuff that's fart and burp jokes. What the fuck are you doing? You need to walk away, dude. Really. You know, it's kind of like dating a chick that you thought was <clears throat> the sun rose and set in her eyes. That she was, and she wanted no interest, had nothing she wanted to do with you whatsoever. She didn't want to be friends, you know? She just wanted nothing, and you kept pursuing, pursuing. And at a certain point, you got to realize, dude, she doesn't want to date you. Fucking walk away, move on down the road, and go find another find another chick, find another gig. And it was literally started producing. And then there was, a, as I told you, the last producing gig, I had a deal with MGM for a while. I had a deal at ABC for a while. I had a deal at NBC for a while. And I was like, fuck it. This is just, I just, I'm, I'm smart enough. Go learn another trick. And well, did. well, why didn't you, when you left from acting and went into producing, why did you just make a clean break then? Was it just something you still had an inkling, you still had some respect and like for the business? Well, no, I was, yes, yes, but I was thinking, okay, I'll produce shit and I'll put myself in it. Um, and look, I've got to give credit to uh, guys like uh, James Franco, you know, who's done some pretty crazy out there shit. I've got to give kudos to, uh, what's the other actor's name that, that has a, He's a young guy, and he's not so young now, and he had a problem for a while punching a, punching a journalist and, you know, <laughs> running around naked. I can't think of his name. Jonah Hill? Uh, pardon me? Jonah Hill? No, no, no. I, can't, I can picture him, but I can't think of his name. Anyway, what I should have done, looking back, and always hindsight's twenty twenty, I should have rallied with people like Darren, who had value who had abilities, who was very talented. And I should have produced my own stuff for myself and went forward that way. I was trying to produce stuff that would appeal to MGM, that would appeal to you know, whoever the distributors were that we were working with. And at that time, I was like, well, you know, we should really put Jimmy Juba in the role, not you, because Jimmy's got, you know, you look at his Q rating right now. Remember it used to be the Q rating? Now everybody looks at IMDB, and what's their IMDB rating? Um, 
So I was not smart enough to really go, okay, I'm picking this, I'm going to do this. Now, mind you, working with Larry, my stretch, once again, hood pranks, hoodpranks.com, right, coralcasting.com. There's a, there's a movie that we would be, that would have been shot already were it not for the coronavirus. And we've got some phenomenal actors in it. And I will put myself in that movie. You know, it's a, it's a great script based on a, on a, uh, a stage play called The Walkers. Phenomenal piece. Uh, Catherine Curtin, do you know Catherine? From uh, Stranger Things and Orange is the New Black. Okay. Just a phenomenal New York actress. She wants to play one of the leads. Love her, love her, love her. Uh, another guy, Jim Ortlieb, he's uh, trained, very prolific as an actor, works all the time, but he's a Chicago guy, has been nominated for, what is it, the Chicago uh, Drama Circle Awards, whatever whatever the awards are in Chicago that they give out for theater, he's been nominated a couple of times. And it's working with people that are really credible, talented, trained actors, actresses, directors, editors, folks like that. And and I will I will step back into it because I love acting so much in that capacity, but never will I be doing the, you know, going to auditions again. Now, things like that. Now, when you produce it, it's a quick question that I, I was wondering. When you produce it and you start producing something, do you bring into the to your mind frame all the bullshit you went through and say, fuck it, I'm going to make this the best experience for them ever? Yes. 100%. 100 At The auditions that we've been having for The Walkers and the gentleman who's directing is a guy named Jeff Delman. Is The first feature film I ever did, he was the director of, and we've remained friends for 38 years now. He was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. He was there for the birth of my children. I was there for the birth of his children. Um, We have both seen each other's wives' vaginas. There we go. Um, But Jeff is one of the best directors I've ever worked with as an actor. What was the movie? uh, (laughs) You know, I liked you right up until this moment, Cooper, okay? (laughs) First film I ever did in, um, what was the name of it? Dead Time Stories. The thing is, he made it for half a million, and it made over $5 million, so he became very desirable. Uh, another Academy Award-winning actress was in that film, Melissa Leo, you know, and, and Jeff just has a great eye for talent, a great eye for material. So when we audition people, it's very, Jeff works with the actors. It isn't that bullshit where, you know, you come in, you say hi to the people, every, you know, half the folks are looking down at their fucking phone or their watch or their scribbling shit or their, you know... We, that person has taken time, the actor, to prepare and put their love and their 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 artistry into that audition. So I want to give them that respect back and be there. We want to we want to nurture that and make that a great experience for them. And the funny thing is, I'll say I don't know if any aspiring actors are going to listen to this. You're good. I wish I had done this 40 years ago. 80% of the people that walk in that room are good and they do a good job. 10% suck big time. And the other 10% really have that, that je ne sais quoi. They have that, that certain something that makes them rise above the other folks. It makes them very special. Um, and it's just, it's a great experience it's, to be collaborative and cooperative and support each other. And that's what we're supposed to do. It shouldn't be this backbiting pettiness. Man, this is, I want to thank you for coming on. I just got to give you one thing that's funny is, you, I don't know if you know this. Do you know, and it's the funniest name, do you know your first IMDb, IMDb credit by any chance? No, I don't. What is it? It's a movie called Waitress or TV show. But oh, Jesus Christ! Your your, <laughs> your character your character is swing dog, dope busboy, and that's one of the best descriptions of a character I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. That was done. The company that did that was Troma. Don't you know Troma Pictures? Yeah. yeah. Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> Lloyd tried to get me to suck his dick. Tell me that. What happened? He would, he would deny vehemently. The funny thing is I auditioned for him and then he tried to do that. I'm like, dude, okay, you may be into that. Not my thing. Not passing judgment, but it's not my thing. So if you want to do that, you should do it with somebody who wants to do it, okay? And really not in this setting. And I saw him a couple months later. Um, 
no, not a couple months, a couple of years later, after I was run over by the truck and where I was going for physical therapy, Lloyd was a client at the same uh, place, Sports Training Institute. And I saw him walking in there. I'm like, hey, Lloyd, remember me? Remember you tried to get to suck my dick? <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, God. Oh. Steve, this has been a real pleasure. It's real been great. Pleasure. No, Thank no. you so much. Give your I info again. Uh, give, give your info. I don't, I don't usually like doing these things. Um, you have made this rather rather pleasant, so thank you very much. You're I appreciate welcome. it. Uh, give your info again, the websites for your new show. New movie coming out next week. You can download it, rent it, own it, hoodpranks.com. And then we've got other shows that we'll be launching on our own OTT. Uh, two NFL shows, Facts of Wife, Hood Pranks, the, the, the series, many other shows. And that site, if you want to participate, is redcoralcasting.com. So people, go go check it out. Go watch Hood Pranks. Um, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 785 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. And I just started a Facebook page for Cooper Talk. I started it a long time ago, but I never did it. But I just started it, and I'm up to 900 likes already, 900 people liking it. And that's just look up Cooper Talk Radio on Facebook and go like it. I post what shows are, but I post some flashbacks of episodes, you know, I just had my episode with E.G. Daly, I posted up there, I posted my episode with Stephen Tobolewski up there, so go check it out. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guests, don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, support local business, and I'll talk to you next time.